0: Chapter Twenty Nine of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, June two thousand eight. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Twenty Nine PREPARATIONS FOR ESCAPE I hardly expect that the reader will credit me, when I affirm that I lived in that little dismal hole, almost deprived of light and air, and with no space to move my limbs, for nearly seven years. But it is a fact, and to me a sad one even now, for my body still suffers from the effects of that long imprisonment, to say nothing of my soul. Members of my family, now living in New York and Boston, can testify to the truth of what I say. Countless were the nights that I sat late at the little loophole, scarcely large enough to give me a glimpse of one twinkling star. There heard the patrols and slave-hunters conferring together about the capture of runaways, well knowing how rejoiced they would be to catch me. Season after season, year after year, I peeped at my children's faces, and heard their sweet voices, with a heart yearning all the while to say,—'Your mother is here.' Sometimes it appeared to me as if ages had rolled away since I entered upon that gloomy monotonous existence. At times I was stupefied and listless. At other times I became very impatient to know when these dark years would end, and I should again be allowed to feel the sunshine, and breathe the pure air. After Ellen left us, this feeling increased. Mr. Sands had agreed that Benny might go to the north whenever his uncle Philip could go with him, and I was anxious to be there also, to watch over my children and protect them so far as I was able. Moreover I was likely to be drowned out of my den, if I remained much longer for the slight roof was getting badly out of repair, and Uncle Philip was afraid to remove the shingles, lest some one should catch a glimpse of me. When storms occurred in the night, they spread mats and bits of carpet, which in the morning appeared to have been laid out to dry, but to cover the roof in the daytime might have attracted attention. Consequently, my clothes and bedding were often drenched, a process by which the pains and aches in my cramped and stiffened limbs were greatly increased. I revolved various plans of escape in my mind, which I sometimes imparted to my grandmother when she came to whisper with me at the trap-door. The kind-hearted old woman had an intense sympathy for runaways. She had known too much of the cruelties inflicted on those who were captured. Her memory always flew back at once to the sufferings of her bright and handsome son, Benjamin, the youngest and dearest of her flock. So whenever I alluded to the subject, she would groan out, "'Oh, don't think of it, child, you'll break my heart.' I had no good old Aunt Nancy now to encourage me. But my brother William and my children were continually beckoning me to the north. And now I must go back a few months in my story. I have stated that the first of January was a time for selling slaves, or leasing them out to new masters. If time were counted by heart-throbs, the poor slaves might reckon years of suffering during that festival so joyous to the free. On the New Year's Day preceding my aunt's death, one of my friends, named Fanny, was to be sold at auction to pay her master's debts. My thoughts were with her during all the day, and at night I anxiously inquired what had been her fate. I was told that she had been sold to one master, and her four little girls to another master far distant, that she had escaped from her purchaser, and was not to be found. Her mother was the old Aggie I have spoken of. She lived in a small tenement belonging to my grandmother, and built on the same lot with her own house. Her dwelling was searched and watched, and that brought the patrols so near me that I was obliged to keep very close in my den. The hunters were somehow eluded, and not long afterwards Benny accidentally caught sight of Fanny in her mother's hut. He told his grandmother, who charged him never to speak of it, explaining to him the frightful consequences, and he never betrayed the trust. Aggie little dreamed that my grandmother knew where her daughter was concealed, and that the stooping form of her old neighbor was bending under a similar burden of anxiety and fear. But these dangerous secrets deepened the sympathy between the two old persecuted mothers. My friend Fanny and I remained many weeks hidden within call of each other, but she was unconscious of the fact. I longed to have her share my den, which seemed a more secure retreat than her own, but I had brought so much trouble on my grandmother that it seemed wrong to ask her to incur greater risks. My restlessness increased. I had lived too long in bodily pain and anguish of spirit. Always I was in dread that by some accident, or some contrivance, slavery would succeed in snatching my children from me. This thought drove me nearly frantic, and I determined to steer for the North Star at all hazards. At this crisis, Providence opened an unexpected way for me to escape. My friend Peter came one evening, and asked to speak with me. "'Your day has come, Linda,' said he. "'I have found a chance for you to go to the Free States. You have a fortnight to decide.' The news seemed too good to be true. But Peter explained his arrangements, and told me all that was necessary was for me to say I would go. I was going to answer him with a joyful yes when the thought of Benny came to my mind. I told him the temptation was exceedingly strong, but I was terribly afraid of Dr. Flynn's alleged power over my child, and that I could not go and leave him behind. Peter remonstrated earnestly. He said such a good chance might never occur again, that Benny was free, and could be sent to me, and that for the sake of my children's welfare I ought not to hesitate a moment. I told him I would consult with Uncle Philip. My uncle rejoiced in the plan, and bade me go by all means. He promised, if his life was spared, that he would either bring or send my son to me as soon as I reached a place of safety. I resolved to go, but thought nothing had better be said to my grandmother till very near the time of departure. But my uncle thought she would feel it more keenly if I left here so suddenly. I will reason with her," said he, and convince her how necessary it is, not only for your sake, but for hers also. You cannot be blind to the fact that she is sinking under her burdens. I was not blind to it. I knew that my concealment was an ever-present source of anxiety, and that the older she grew the more nervously fearful she was of discovery. My uncle talked with her, and finally succeeded in persuading her that it was absolutely necessary for me to seize the chance so unexpectedly offered. The anticipation of being a free woman proved almost too much for my weak frame. The excitement stimulated me, and at the same time bewildered me. I made busy preparations for my journey, and for my son to follow me. I resolved to have an interview with him before I went, that I might give him cautions and advice, and tell him how anxiously I should be waiting for him at the North. Grandmother stole up to me as often as possible to whisper words of counsel. She insisted upon writing to Dr. Flint as soon as I arrived in the Free States, and asking him to sell me to her. She said she would sacrifice her house and all she had in the world for the sake of having me safe with my children in any part of the world. If she could only live to know that she could die in peace i promised the dear old faithful friend that i would write to her as soon as i arrived and put the letter in a safe way to reach her but in my own mind i resolved that not another cent of her hard earnings should be spent to pay rapacious slaveholders for what they called their property And even if I had not been unwilling to buy what I had already a right to possess, common humanity would have prevented me from accepting the generous offer, at the expense of turning my aged relative out of house and home, when she was trembling on the brink of the grave. I was to escape in a vessel. But I forbear to mention any further particulars. I was in readiness, but the vessel was unexpectedly detained several days. Meantime news came to town of a most horrible murder committed on a fugitive slave named James. Charity, the mother of this unfortunate young man, had been an old acquaintance of ours. I have told the shocking particulars of his death in my description of some of the neighbouring slaveholders. My grandmother, always nervously sensitive about runaways, was terribly frightened. She felt sure that a similar fate awaited me if I did not desist from my enterprise. She sobbed and groaned and entreated me not to go. Her excessive fear was somewhat contagious, and my heart was not proof against her extreme agony. I was grievously disappointed, but I promised to relinquish my project. When my friend Peter was apprised of this, he was both disappointed and vexed. He said that, judging from our past experience, it would be a long time before I had another such chance to throw away. I told him it need not be thrown away, that I had a friend concealed near by who would be glad enough to take the place that had been provided for me. I told him about poor Fanny and the kind-hearted noble fellow, who never turned his back upon anybody in distress, white or black, expressed his readiness to help her. Aggie was much surprised when she found that we knew her secret. She was rejoiced to hear of such a chance for Fanny, and arrangements were made for her to go on board the vessel the next night. They both supposed that I had long been at the north, therefore my name was not mentioned in the transaction. Fanny was carried on board at the appointed time, and stowed away in a very small cabin. This accommodation had been purchased at a price that would pay for a voyage to England. But when one proposes to go to fine old England, they stop to calculate whether they can afford the cost of the pleasure, while in making a bargain to escape from slavery, the trembling victim is ready to say, "'Take all I have, only don't betray me.'" The next morning I peeped through my loophole, and saw that it was dark and cloudy. At night I received news that the wind was ahead, and the vessel had not sailed. I was exceedingly anxious about Fanny, and Peter, too, who was running a tremendous risk at my instigation. Next day the wind and weather remained the same. Poor Fanny had been half dead with fright when they carried her on board, and I could readily imagine how she must be suffering now. Grandmother came often to my den, to say how thankful she was that I did not go. On the third morning she rapped for me to come down to the store-room. The poor old sufferer was breaking down under her weight of trouble. She was easily flurried now. I found her in a nervous, excited state, but I was not aware that she had forgotten to lock the door behind her as usual. She was exceedingly worried about the detention of the vessel. She was afraid all would be discovered, and then Fanny, and Peter, and I would all be tortured to death, and Philip would be utterly ruined, and her house would be torn down. Poor Peter! If he should die such a horrible death as the poor slave James had lately done, and all for his kindness in trying to help me, how dreadful it would be for us all! Alas! the thought was familiar to me, and had sent many a sharp pang through my heart. I tried to suppress my own anxiety, and speak soothingly to her. She brought in some allusion to Aunt Nancy, the dear daughter she had recently buried, and then she lost all control of herself. As she stood there, trembling and sobbing, a voice from the piazza called out, "Where is you, Aunt Marthy?' Grandmother was startled, and in her agitation opened the door without thinking of me. In stepped Jenny, the mischievous housemaid, who had tried to enter my room when I was concealed in the house of my white benefactress. "'I's been huntin' everywhere for you, Aunt Marthy,' said she. "'My missus wants you to send her some crackers.' I had slunk down behind a barrel which entirely screened me, but I imagined that Jenny was looking directly at the spot, and my heart beat violently. My grandmother immediately thought what she had done, and went out quickly with Jenny to count the crackers, locking the door after her. She returned to me in a few minutes the perfect picture of despair. "'Poor child!' she exclaimed. "'My carelessness has ruined you. The boat ain't gone yet. Get ready immediately, and go with Fanny. I ain't got another word to say against it now for there's no telling what may happen this day." Uncle Philip was sent for, and he agreed with his mother in thinking that Jenny would inform Dr. Flint in less than twenty-four hours. He advised me getting on board the boat, if possible. If not, I had better keep very still in my den, where they cannot find me without tearing the house down. He said it would not do for him to move in the matter, because suspicion would be immediately excited, but he promised to communicate with Peter. I felt reluctant to apply to him again, having implicated him too much already, but there seemed to be no alternative. Vexed as Peter had been by my indecision, he was true to his generous nature, and said at once that he would do his best to help me, trusting I should show myself a stronger woman this time. He immediately proceeded to the wharf, and found that the wind had shifted, and the vessel was slowly beating downstream. On some pretext of urgent necessity, he offered two boatmen a dollar apiece to catch up with her. He was of lighter complexion than the boatman he hired, and when the captain saw them coming so rapidly, he thought officers were pursuing his vessel in search of the runaway slave he had on board. They hoisted sails, but the boat gained upon them, and the indefatigable Peter sprang on board. The captain at once recognized him. Peter asked him to go below to speak about a bad bill he had given him. When he told his errand, the captain replied, "'Why, the woman's here already, and I've put her where you or the devil would have a tough job to find her.' "'But it is another woman I want to bring,' said Peter. "'She is in great distress, too, and you shall be paid anything within reason if you'll stop and take her.' "'What's her name?' inquired the captain. "'Linda,' he replied. "'That's the name of the woman already here,' rejoined the captain. "'By George, I believe you mean to betray me.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Peter. "'God knows I wouldn't harm a hair of your head. "'I'm too grateful to you.' But there really is another woman in great danger—do have the humanity to stop and take her." After a while they came to an understanding. Fanny, not dreaming I was anywhere about in that region, had assumed my name, though she called herself Johnson. "'Linda is a common name,' said Peter, "'and the woman I want to bring is Linda Brent.' The captain agreed to wait at a certain place till evening, being handsomely paid for his detention. Of course the day was an anxious one for us all. But we concluded that if Jenny had seen me, she would be too wise to let her mistress know of it, and that she probably would not get a chance to see Dr. Flint's family till evening, for I knew very well what were the rules in that household. I afterwards believed that she did not see me, for nothing ever came of it, and she was one of those base characters that would have jumped to betray a suffering fellow-being for the sake of thirty pieces of silver. I made all my arrangements to go on board as soon as it was dusk the intervening time I resolved to spend with my son. I had not spoken to him for seven years, though I had been under the same roof, and seen him every day when I was well enough to sit at the loophole. I did not dare to venture beyond the storeroom, so they brought him there, and locked us up together, in a place concealed from the piazza door. It was an agitating interview for both of us. After we had talked and wept together for a little while, he said, "'Mother, I am glad you are going away. I wish I could go with you. I knew you was here. "'and I've been so afraid they would come and catch you.' I was greatly surprised, and asked him how he had found it out. He replied, "'I was standing under the eaves one day before Ellen went away, "'and I heard somebody cough up over the woodshed. "'I don't know what made me think it was you, but I did think so. "'I missed Ellen the night before she went away, "'and Grandmother brought her back into the room in the night, "'and I thought maybe she'd been to see you before she went, "'for I heard Grandmother whisper to her, "'Now go to sleep, and remember never to tell.' I asked him if he ever mentioned his suspicions to his sister. He said he never did, but after he heard the cough, if he saw her playing with other children on that side of the house, he always tried to coax her round to the other side, for fear that they would hear me cough too. He said he had kept a close lookout for Dr. Flint, and if he saw him speak to a constable or a patrol, he always told Grandmother. I now recollected that I had seen him manifest uneasiness when people were on that side of the house, and I had at the time been puzzled to conjecture a motive for his actions. Such prudence may seem extraordinary in a boy of twelve years, but slaves, being surrounded by mysteries, deceptions, and dangers, early learn to be suspicious and watchful, and prematurely cautious and cunning. He had never asked a question of Grandmother, or Uncle Philip, and I had often heard him chime in with other children when they spoke of my being at the North. I told him I was now really going to the Free States, and if he was a good, honest boy and a loving child to his dear old grandmother, the Lord would bless him and bring him to me, and we and Ellen would live together. He began to tell me that grandmother had not eaten anything all day. While he was speaking the door was unlocked, and she came in with a small bag of money which she wanted me to take. I begged her to keep a part of it at least to pay for Benny's being sent to the north, but she insisted, while her tears were falling fast, that I should take the whole. You may be sick among strangers," she said, and they would send you to the poorhouse to die." Ah! that good grandmother! For the last time I went up to my nook. Its desolate appearance no longer chilled me, for the light of hope had risen in my soul. Yet even with the blessed prospect of freedom before me, I felt very sad at leaving forever that old homestead where I had been sheltered so long by the dear old grandmother, where I had dreamed my first young dream of love and where after that had faded away, my children came to twine themselves so closely round my desolate heart. As the hour approached for me to leave, I again descended to the storeroom. My grandmother and Benny were there. She took me by the hand and said, Linda, let us pray. We knelt down together with my child pressed to my heart, and my other arm round the faithful, loving old friend I was about to leave forever— On no other occasion has it ever been my lot to listen to so fervent a supplication for mercy and protection. It thrilled through my heart, and inspired me with trust in God. Peter was waiting for me in the street. I was soon by his side, faint in body, but strong of purpose. I did not look back upon the old place, though I felt that I should never see it again. End of chapter 29